Wow. Thank you very much. I hadn't re I hadn't thought to say this, Donald, but uh, in more recent years, as I've come to teach more and more people how to lead a meta retreat and how to teach it, I say to them, you know, when I meet individually with people, you know, you know, because you're there, you have ten or fifteen minutes to come in and tell another person what are the most, what's the the forward edge of your practice, what do you now see and understand, and also tell them this is where I'm struggling and this is where I'm having a hard time, and what do you think I should do now? And you have ten or fifteen minutes most to tell them that. And I say the only thing that you really need to do, I say to myself when I sit down and people come in, especially people I haven't met before and I don't know, I say to myself, you now have 10 or 15 minutes to fall in love with this person. You have to find something about them that connects you viscerally to them, that you love them. And then whatever you say will be helpful. But really, the more I think about it, the more I think that meta practice is about connection and about restoring the connection between oneself and others and taking the connect and not, which is as I am connecting with other people, either in person or in even in cyberspace, but connecting with them. If for that moment, I am not falling back into myself and ruminating on my same stuff. It takes me out of myself. It's kind of artificial, not artificial. It's real resuscitation from the going nowhere preoccupation from oneself and one's problems. So it really is life-giving to connect with other people. I uh, I wrote on the top of I, these pages of full of scribble of what I want to mention that I've been thinking all week of um, all of you going through an introduction to goodwill practice, to blessing practice, to metta practice. And I've been thinking um, that the, the progression of metta, may I feel da-da-da-da-da, or may you feel, and may she feel, and may they feel, and may he feel, and one after another, and blessing in thought and in heart uh various categories of people and i want to say if you would take away one takeaway from this whole teaching that i'm doing right now i would like it to be that the principal beneficiary of all expressions of goodwill is yourself every one of those prayers for the well-being of this one or that one or the other one or somebody else is purifying your own mind of uh any any uh, negativity, any problems that might arise to take away your capacity to see clearly. And and really, I just, like five minutes before we were at, I was talking to Aaron about five minutes before we were about to get on. And I thought, oh, I forgot. I thought to myself, uh, for, I was looking for another yet another proof text for that. I thought to myself, the, uh, there's an expression that comes up in the reading of the early teachings of the Buddha, where uh, after his enlightenment experience under the Bodhi tree, he went here, he went there, and he taught this group of five and that group of more and that group of more. And they often end those recitations of who he taught and what he said, that by saying that, and as he spoke, Behind the eyes, from behind the eyes, 
of this and this, 10 different people or 20 different people or 80 different people, behind the eyes of this many people arose the spotlight, which means in their mind, I suppose it's a colorful way to say it, behind the eyes of that and that many people arose the spotless imagination the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, they got it like he did. They got it that life is difficult for everyone. We make it worse. We don't have to. We could be free. We could be free to reach out and connect, and it would be our own liberation. Behind the eyes of X and Y, many people arose the special, the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I remember reading that 20 and 30 and 40 years ago and thinking, not really getting it, but thinking that's such a lovely line. And their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. Purify our hearts so we can really be present and see that the rest of the world is us in different shapes and forms. And the Buddha's teaching on metta is often called, I think, on the on the on the new translation, which I I think you've all gotten. It's called the Buddha's sermon on impartial kindness. The first retreat I ever went to. It was even a pre-retreat, a weekend retreat in the South Bay, before I ever went to a real real retreat, which I did soon after that. Uh, one of the things that I took away from that, I didn't have a good time. It was uncomfortable for all kinds of reasons. But there was a little plaque on the mantelpiece in the living room of that house that said, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And that little plaque, I think, was so meaningful to me. I thought, well, I wasn't happy with the form of what I was doing. I didn't get it. and My back hurt and all kinds of things. And I didn't know there wasn't going to be coffee there. So I wasn't feeling good for that weekend. But I thought, you know, if that's what they're teaching here, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And it's not difficult in the sense that my personal life in the, is not difficult and hasn't been. I've had things that were painful in my life, but of the painful things that can happen to people in their life, I've been extraordinarily blessed. But I have, as do all other living beings, I I have the vulnerability. I am vulnerable to the grief and the loss and the pain and the disappointment of being separated from what I love, who I love mostly. If we are in a life, then that's the shared illness that we all have. We are vulnerable to loss and we're afraid of it. If you remember uh, uh, hearing uh, Dharma talks about the Buddha's own awakening and the Buddha's own going forth from his comfortable living situation, whether you want to think of it as mythical or actual, that the, the sights that he saw when he left were old age, sickness, and death. And which are the truth of any anything that's in a life. He's gonna have this kind of lifetime and then have to deal with the loss of vitality, the loss of uh, vigor, the loss of health, the loss of people that we love mostly. 
our parents, we hope, before us, but sometimes not, sometimes our peers, sometimes, God forbid, our children. So that I think that that sort of awareness of vulnerability is really the bottom line of what's really frightening about life. And everybody is vulnerable. We all have it. We say, I, I'm very pleased to think about I heard, I learned through, oh, years ago that uh, from a friend of mine who had been hearing some teachings from Mahagosananda, who's no longer alive now. I met him later on, but when I met him, I already knew. He said he doesn't say so much at conferences. He just sits there and says to himself and, and listens and participates and says things, but keeps on saying to himself, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So it doesn't say very much. And I, I I say that with affection because the person who said it to me is a very dear friend of mine. But I think that's very much. I think that's the whole of the Dharma, to see so clearly that our mind is purified of any taint of not liking. Sometimes I used to um I used to say to people, what if I had, what if I told you that this picture here is it, well, this glass is a magic glass, and the water in it has been treated with an herb, and you can't see it. It's invisible herb. But if you take a drink of that water, you will forget all the stories that you ever had in your mind that separated you from other people, all the story, all the reasons that you don't like them, um, maybe even all the reasons that you don't like yourself. You forget all the um, all the the charged with negativity thoughts. And somebody mostly I said, how many people in this room would take a sip of that water? And people look around like, you know, I think figure everybody should be having their hands up, waving, give me that water, you know, my life be so much better. People say, and somebody often says, if I forgot all my stories about who I didn't like, who would I be? I said, well, you'd be a person with a relaxed mind. You know, you'd be a different person. You'd be a person with peace of mind. You'd be a person whose mind was not clouded with stories that are not so relevant now, that you don't need for self-protection. And you would be able with not crowded mind, clouded mind to see that everyone is vulnerable. Not everyone is suffering the agonies of loss every minute of their lives. In fact, uh, the Buddha, especially in the early scriptures, talked about the, the um, this one precious life. And so to use it well. So it's not about every moment being difficult, but every moment being one in which some pain and difficulty that can't be fixed might arise. We're all vulnerable to that. And we want to be. There are even some, I think, debatable things in the scripture where um, there's a line in the early scripture that says, uh, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And I think that's true. Uh, it's not maybe causing pain this very moment. But everything that's dear to us is some other way that we have risked our ease of mind by adopting or taking on somebody to love. 
because we might lose them. They might lose us. And everybody wants that. Everybody's looking around all the time to find people that they can make dear to themselves and people who want us to be dear to them. So it's kind of a bind. I taught a, uh, com I taught a class recently. Um, I taught a class for my friend, Will, who's a, um, uh, teaches at the Graduate School of Business in Berkeley. And I was teaching students who are graduate students. So they're people in their 20s, they're young, they're graduate students. And most of them are doing very exciting projects. A lot of them around communities of different um, social need, young people or old people. But they're doing, um, they're social activists. I bet they would think of themselves as social activists. And they're aware of all kinds of communities of need. And they're uh, it, early on in their graduate school, their programs, they're devising programs and they're doing really exciting things. And Will invited me to teach the class that day, really to talk about mindfulness and uh, uh, to talk about that mindful awareness is really uh, the, the talking about clarity of vision so that we can not only know that there are these difficulties that we need to look at clearly and recognize as being situations that cause extra pain in the life, and that there are ways, to, the principal way to address the extra pain is to uh, collaborate and communicate and connect with other people on projects that lift that pain from the community. And also that mindfulness really soothes the mind in the sense that it says these losses, the pain, the, the social problems in the world will not be changed by mindfulness. They'll be changed by activism and, and making a difference and behaving in new ways. But having a mind that's steady enough to recognize that even if all the social problems and all the isms in the world were addressed, we would still have the problem of all being vulnerable to loss and separation from what we love. One of them in the lunchtime that day, I spent the day with them and I did different kinds of mindfulness practices with them. And then we were sitting and spending time talking afterwards, debriefing, I guess. And um, somebody very sweetly said to me, why are you practicing now? He, he said, uh, do you have a regular practice now? Well, I said, yes, of course, I do. I said, in, in addition to the fact that I do sit every day and have some time set aside for collecting my mind, I said, in addition to that, I like to think of the whole of my life being one long practice of attention and awareness moment to moment. Doesn't mean that I moment to moment know if I'm breathing in or breathing out or moment to moment know how everything about my body feels. My practice moment to moment is to be attentive to the arising in my mind of negativity the arising of unwholesome thoughts, 
the arising of greed, hatred, and delusion. But if I'm going along in my day and I'm, I'm in my regular life, not home sitting, doing this or this, what sets up a bell in my mind, I have a mindfulness bell. And the mindfulness bell is the response to the awareness, uh-oh, that's a negative thought that just arose. And that's a negative feeling. Whatever it is, you know, that uh, uh, maybe the person in, in the line in the front of me in the supermarket is taking way too long to get through. That's, you know, that's a standard thing. On Everybody can relate to that. Maybe my mind says, oh, either just my luck I got in this line or oh, they don't realize that there are people online. But at the beginning of that thought, at this point, what my mind does, it says, wait a minute. <laughs> you're just nervous because you're getting late. You know, this is what it is. Relax. Don't choose it. It's a it's a negative thought, and a negative impulse, negative feeling that comes up, and the mind can grab it or not. And if it doesn't grab it, what it thinks instead is we're all in a rush. I'll be there. When I get to where I'm going, I'll be there. And it's it happens in a microsecond, really. It's almost getting irritable and not. Almost thinking another annoyed thought and not. May I be free of enmity and danger is the first line of metta practice that I learned from my teacher, Sharon Salzberg, in 1985. Um, Sharon learned it in 1984. <laughs> we laughed about that. Sharon and I were friends, but she went to uh, Burma the year before and studied this time, uh, this type of blessing practice with Upandita in a very um in a, in a very strict and dedicated way and was very uh, moved and transformed by it and the next year I went to Barry and everybody else is sitting in the hall and doing a mindfulness retreat and I am meeting with Sharon every day and I am practicing saying phrases of benevolence praying blessing really may i feel safe may i feel content may i feel strong may i live with ease in the old days we used to actually say the phrase may i be free of enmity and danger and for complicated reasons when i first learned that i thought well i didn't even understand it correctly i thought May I be free from people who come after me with enmity or something. So you should that would it should magically protect me from um, harmful things in the world. And then after some period of time, I realized it doesn't mean that at all. It means may I be free of enmity in me towards anything. That's what it means. And I, you know, I I use it now. And I, I, it's true that. In all the years of teaching, I changed it because my teachers did mostly, but because it's easier to say, may I feel safe, may I feel content, may I feel strong, or whatever it is that you're saying. But it's clear to me that what I like to feel safe from is my own judgmental mind. 
There's a line in the movie Kundun in which the young boy Dalai Lama says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. I usually rent that movie, Kundun, every, oh no, no, I don't rent it anymore. Now you can pull it up on Netflix or Amazon once a year just to uh, have a commemorative listen because it's so sweet. And mostly that one line in which the young boy says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. I think we all are. So I said to these, um, and these young folks, the graduate students in Berkeley, they were very sweet. And I realized that, uh, you know, here they are, they're all in their 20s, and I'm 86 at this point. So they think I'm very old. I actually think I'm very old, too. But uh, uh, they, you know, it's a kind of a thing like, are we there yet? So they said, do you practice every day? And I, uh, as I told you before, I do. I, uh, and I explained to them, I not only sit in a way that you could say, well, Sylvia's practicing now, but i that's my practice is noticing when aversion or irritability or complaining mind or anything that constricts the mind comes up. And I might say to myself, relax, or may I be free of danger. Or this is aversion. Don't go there. More, I'm more likely not to even have to say so much stuff. If I notice it, it goes away. And it makes space in the mind that allows for something sweet to come in. Like everybody on this line is probably thinking the same thing. May we all get to our appointments wherever we are on time. Everybody these days is irritable. But I think because they were so young, and I am really so much older, they, um, they one of them said to me, what's the goal of your practice these days? And I think what he meant is, uh, you know, if you practice learning French for 40 years or something, you're supposed to say, I'd like to speak a little more fluently. Or my friends who are cellists, they, their, their goal is to keep up their or increase their virtuosity. And so what what are you what are you aiming for now? What's your intention? And I I did not say to them I'd like to meet each moment as a friend. I should have because that's a uh, uh, a, a practice remark that I used for years in teaching metta. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend, which, by the way, is a very nice phrase. You can do that if you want. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? It's just a change from other things. But what I said to them, because I think if they would get it faster, is I said, I want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. That's what I'd like to have. That's what I'm doing. Everybody feels safe in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. How many people got that illusion? Put up your hand if you understood that. And if you also would like to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I would. Anybody is safe in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Even difficult situations, difficult people, difficult, difficult thoughts, because he's prepared to take off his jacket and put on a sweater 
and sit down and say, let's meet it, let's talk about it. I want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. They understood that. And I really mean it. It's a little bit maybe silly sounding, but uh, that really is 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 my point. I've I was I've been thinking that all week. And then I thought, well, there it is right in the in the stories of the early Buddha and their minds through not clinging were liberated from taints. What do I need to have all those old stories of who I don't like? Or poor me. They don't enhance anything now. They're not they're unwise. I see that the time is moving on. I want to say that uh, I think there's a lot of more connections. I keep seeing them all the time between the the fundamental teachings of the Buddha and the idea of purifying the mind from taints so that we can connect. Imagine, I always, I've been saying for years, suppose everybody in the world stopped and looked around at the same moment and said, wait a minute, just a minute here, what are we doing? We're despoiling the planet, we're despoiling the atmosphere. The climate is changing, we have atmospheric rivers coming up. I, I was thinking this week, we used to, a week ago, two weeks ago, worried about California is going to be a desert. And now people are talking about maybe California won't be a desert. Maybe the shoreline will fall off and will be something else. But in the meantime, how are we going to meet that while trying to kindly bring everybody along with us? Say, here we are. Here's my hand. I'll give you my hand. You take it. I'll help you. You help me. There's a book that was reviewed in the uh, New York Times on Sunday in the book review. And the book is called A Heart That Hurts by Rob Delaney. And uh, can you imagine what a heart that hurts is? I, I'm, I'm sad. To, oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I asked you to think about a time in your life that your heart hurt, you could think about something. And a heart is supposed to hurt. You know, when I first started my practice, which is 40 some years ago, I think I had some idea that I would have some miraculous change where things would happen and that they would, I would know about them, but they wouldn't grab me as they do. And I don't want that kind of a heart that's indifferent to what goes on. I And actually, I didn't get one. I think I'm way more passionate about loving now and way more passionate about grieving when I am bereft. So this Heart That Hurts by Rob Delaney is about, he's a man with, he's a writer, and he, now he's written, this is not his first book, He's written numbers of books, and he um, just wrote a book called The Heart That Hurts that's about his third son. He had three sons that were six and four and two, and the two-year-old died. 
And the two-year-old died of a um, congenital disease that he was born with. And he's written us a memoir about it. That, by the way, that says there. I'll tell you this part because it makes it makes sense to me. It's a lot about the agony of seeing your two-year-old beautiful child dying and not being able to do anything about it. And in the middle of it, the ability to laugh. Some reason that's very moving to me. Even it says in this, I'm reading from the New York Times, uh, even some of the darkest moments are slashed through with lights. When his father-in-law weeps, I wish it weeps and says, I wish it would me in, instead of Henry. Delaney responds, we do too, Richard. And the whole family starts laughing because, of course, they do too. And the poor grandfather. And... But then he says, no one wants to, uh, the family laughs through their tears at that moment, as did I reading about it. No one wants our parents to die, but isn't the preferred order for the old folks to go before the kids? We laugh because it's true. And that's another miracle, whether or not that we can laugh in the middle of a thing like that, whether or not you have ever had to administer a tracheostomy on your own child or clean one. It's impossible not to recognize the joys and the heartbreak of our shared human condition. That's, I think, the whole thing, the shares of the joys and the heartbreak of our shared human condition. We want so much for who and what we love to live. We wanna have people to love. We want them to love us. In spite of that they or we will lose each other, we'll all lose our vitality. We all won't be here after a certain amount of time. And he talks about what he thinks could happen if people woke up to that. I think that's a sentence I started two or three sentences ago, where I had this fantasies that the whole planet could stop. Oh, that's a poem by uh, Pablo Neruda, where called "Keeping Quiet," Akearse, where he says, "If the whole world just stayed quiet, and we counted up to twelve, and no one moved." And we all looked around and we all saw what we're doing to the world and to each other. Our hurt hands, our destroyed planets, our unseen pain, that we would turn around and embrace each other and lower our voices. He says it this way. A Heart That Works, that's the name of his book, may be a tribute to a lost son and a family who survives him. It may be a hand outstretched to a bereaved parents who feel alone on their planet of grief. But most of all, it is a hopeful plea to people everywhere to make choices large and small, guided by love. What a world it would be if we did. What a world, really, it would be.
if we did. If the whole world said, okay, on behalf of our progeny and everybody else's progeny and the next generation and the next generations, what about if we stop all these limiting lines? You're this, I'm a that, you're this, you're that. I believe this, you believe that. What if we just say, give me your hand. Come and have dinner. Can we forget categories of people? You're not my type or my sort or my belief. Or... And that we would be the principal beneficiaries if there was nothing left. Could have a world purified from pains. That's what you're doing there in that practice. And it works. It works partly, I'm sure your your instructions have included that it works because the the principal instruction is do it over and over and over and over. Take this phrase, that phrase, don't spend, I would give you the instruction, don't spend too much time on what phrase you're going to say. It doesn't matter, actually. You want to say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering over and over and over again and think about anybody. It will work because it's a benign, it's more than benign. It's a loving thought and it's over and over and over again. And the over and over and over again part of it is what keeps other thoughts that habitually come up and cloud the mind from coming up. And in the keeping them from coming up, it soothes the mind because those are poisons in the mind. And they agitate the mind and they keep the body and the mind agitated and startleable. And doing the same thing over and over and over and over and more and more simply unstartles the mind and soothes it because it's not it doesn't startle, but it just does. Not so much input. Or say different phrases, but say things I, I, that you can feel, I think. May I be free of enmity and danger. Or may I feel safe. May I feel strong. May I feel content. May I feel at ease. Any one of these, I spend a lot of time, uh, if I'm on retreat, saying to myself, just one of those words, content, 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 content. Just training my neurons to do that. Habituating my neurons to kindness is what I think about doing. That's what I think we're doing. And when Donald said before that, you know, maybe it's so that people, uh, I'd like to think, because I feel often welled up with tears. If I were there and seeing each of you individually, I would feel welled up with tears because everybody comes with their particular story of pain and um, pain. Over the years, um, from the time I first learned the Four Noble Truths, life comes with pain and difficulty. We make it worse by uh, peremptorily responding rather than thoughtfully responding. And we could train the mind not to make it worse by 
peremptorily responding, could we respond out of wisdom? And if we responded to help us respond out of wisdom, we could do the Eightfold Path, which would be the fourth of the noble truth. And in, I don't know how many years, but at some point in my, I used to think, well, it's the second noble truth that's important. No, it's really the third noble truth that's important because that there's an end to suffering. No, it's really the fourth noble truth that's really important because here are all the ways that you can manifest it in your life so there's no time that you're not practicing. But in the last couple of years, I've been thinking the first noble truth is really life comes with pain and difficulty for everyone. And to be able to see that we have a few more minutes. Maybe I'll tell you this, Risa, that I really, I really like to talk about this. I am passionate about it. I think that it's been it's been my experience that it's not looking at at the world with a pessimistic uh, view or with a tainted view. Uh, to make it more grim than it is. It's not grim, it's just true that we are all vulnerable to pain and loss and fragile, and we should lower our voices, metaphorically speaking. And sometimes when you look in, sometimes I look in a call, like an airplane full of people flying, and I think, you know, you can't really see as you go up and down the airplane who's just got a diabetes diagnosis and whose father just died and whose mother is in the hospital and they're flying to see them and who's getting a heart transplant at the Mayo Clinic and whose mother is getting a heart transplant and whose sister just uh, had a stillborn baby. You don't know. Everybody's just sitting. But if you look at everybody in the plane and you think may all beings be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering, it's always applicable to everybody because we're all suffering. But you have to change the lenses. You have to purposely think. I was thinking about that because I just did a lot of flying around. I was in South America for a month visiting my new great-grandchild. And then I was in I was in Pennsylvania and I was in New York and I flew home. And what I did on this flight, which I haven't done before in my life, is I was, I was traveling alone, is I went up to the desk and I got my boarding pass and I said, I need a wheelchair and I can still walk, but I can't walk all the way down whole long airports and crowded and take my hand luggage and organize. I can, but it's much easier in a wheelchair. And it took, I've been thinking about it for some years and you get up to ready to say, I need a wheelchair and magically anyway. Fast forward to the end, when you come out with a wheelchair, when you come out of the plane, there's people ready and go in a wheelchair. And especially it's good at customs because they go in their own aisle with a custom. So I'm sitting, and there's a person pushing me, and I talk to them, and they're lovely. And I see that from my low position on a in a wheelchair, they hear all these people around on other lines, but here in this part of the customs, uh, there's a whole wheelchair contingent. And I had my camera with me, 
and I surreptitiously you're not supposed to take pictures there. I took a picture at my level in there. And I think this is the under picture, the under picture of a whole airport bustling with vigorous people is there's a whole community of unvigorous people. And I was thinking to myself, in the airplane full of what looks like people going who knows where, some of them are going to grim things and some of them are going to birthday parties, but you don't know. There's always the understory. In the last few years, when my main thought has been to look about what does it mean when I say life comes with pain and suffering? It does. And that if you just periodically change the lens and look at that, it breaks the heart. It touches the heart. It's not sad. It's just how it is that there are that many people in wheelchairs. And it's wonderful that they have people who are making a living from pushing them around. Everything is okay about that. Except, and not except, everything is okay about that. Especially if it reminds me to look for where is the hidden in everything. And if I look at that, I will not only see the suffering in everything, I'll also see the glory in everything and the amazingness it is to have a connection to life. What did somebody tell me? There was one phrase that was so wonderful about it allows you to be, it, it, it allows you to experience, that's I love this, the astonishing poignancy of living. So that's what I want to leave you with, the astonishing poignancy of living. I miss you so much. I wish I were there. <laughs> and it's a quarter to five, so I need to stop. Blessings. May you all thrive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.